all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit provides information on how you can lead a healthy lifestyle. I'm the host, Josie Bidwell. Search for and subscribe to Southern Remedy on any podcasting app to not miss any episode. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And this is your Southern Remedy program where you can call in with any and all medical questions that you might have. It could be a new symptom. It could be a new medication, maybe a potential side effect. Anything, a new diagnosis that you don't quite understand, you can call in with all those questions and more that are related to your health or the health of someone near and dear to you. And if you call in first, you get the dubious distinction of being the first caller. So uh, just throwing that out there if you're a little hesitant. And oh, we might have a, us a winner here. Um, but uh, we do encourage people to call in earlier just because you usually have a little bit more time to talk about things once we get sort of towards the end. Unfortunately, if we have two or three people towards the end of the program, we have to rush and uh, hate doing that because as always, everybody has a great question that's not only applicable to them, but also to our entire listening area. And I guarantee you there is more than one other person out there that can benefit from your question and from us discussing that. So it's not just what I bring to the program. It's what you bring to the program that makes this Southern Remedy uh, program really good, if not great, I would say. So uh, just something to think about there. Um, You know, lots of stuff in the news about uh, viral infections ramping up. Certainly, you know, some people have asked about flu vaccine. We have started to see some flu cases already. Um, Weird seasonal patterns here, and there's lots of different reasons for that. So it's, you know, I think a lot of people get, um, it's sort of this misconception that a lot of viral infections just follow um, like uh, the temperature, you know, like if it's cold, then that somehow makes them um, makes them reproduce better or be transferred better from one person to the other. Not necessarily the case. It is the case that with seasonal patterns of transference um, and then in viruses like flu that also have animal, uh, what we call vectors, animals that uh, types of animals like birds and pigs that flu affects, and then it sort of mixes and matches up and changes over time. All those things go into why we have you know certain t- different times of the year that that people uh, that we start to see flu. But anyway, it is out there. Um, the vaccine has been uh, is already available in a lot of different places. 
A lot of people say, well, I just want to wait. Don't wait. Go ahead and get it because it's out there. You know, if we weren't seeing a lot of flu, I might say, okay, well, you might have a reason why you want to wait. But we're already seeing some ramp ups of flu and certainly don't want to get it. Even if you're healthy, that's uh, probably something that you don't want to endure. We're just talking about that, you know, with four or five days of feeling bad. Or if you're around somebody who's immunocompromised, we still see a lot of deaths that are attributable to flu uh, in older people, immunocompromised people. So it's, you know, lots of good reasons why you need that flu vaccine. All right. I'm trying to figure out who we're going to go to first here. I think it's going to be Walker in Carroll County. Good morning, Walker. Good morning. Thanks for calling. What's your question this morning? Okay. January uh, 2021, I had a bunionectomy in Memphis. And uh, ever since, I've had a tingling and a numbness in the quadrant of my foot where the bunionectomy was performed and occasional severe pain in what was my middle toe, or I guess it still is my middle toe. Uh, And uh, I've seen a a neurologist and a podiatrist uh, about it, and uh, nothing seems to be coming to mind that can diagnose what's happening now. I gather that some nerves were affected in the operation, and I know that nerve tissue doesn't regenerate very easily, but I would like to know that something can be done, if nothing else, just numbing it. But I, that, that, that's my question, is what, what can I do with a foot that has nerve damage, apparently, from an operation that's over two years old? Yeah, good question. So a couple of thoughts on that. So a bunion, typically, uh, when that is repaired surgically, it it can affect some local nerves, but excuse me, from where what you're describing, particularly if it involves the whole area, um, that's a little bit more than what's normally involved in the surgery. Now I don't know, you know, how deep they cut or that kind of thing. You can there's always some risk when you excise something like that of you know sort of collateral damage to other things in the area. But I would I would consider maybe going to see a sports medicine person or an orthopedic surgeon to have them look elsewhere. You know, if they that's just not something that's that common. Um, if it's if it's involving a little bit wider area out from from where that surgery was, it's in other words, it should be just downstream to that area. You can have referred pain or referred numbness that is spread out over a little bit wider area, but a little bit unusual i would have a surgeon look at it because they may want to get an mri because you could have something like a morton's neuroma that would affect the same uh you know have the same symptoms and affect sort of that area that you're you're describing well the second toe was also shortened during this operation so it was a bit more i gotcha Uh, i gotcha you were holding you you were holding back on me don yeah that that certainly uh that certainly could have done it then that that explains it more yeah, I would say if you're two years out and that's what they think, I'll, you know, it doesn't hurt to go and get a second opinion. But if they, particularly if they did that operation, they are probably going to hit that nerve root. Uh, and you might have either from the initial surgery or from scar tissue later on, there may be some damage there. Now, there, there could be, you know, some revision of that. You're probably, you know, usually if it's just numbness, um, it may not, you may not have any improvement. If it's pain, then they might, you know, can do something to it either with an injection or with excision if they think that there's any kind of scar tissue right there. But two years out, uh, that you, you may not regain some of that. 
I'm assuming I, I won't. I just wanted the, the pain in the in the middle toe to, to not be bothering me so much. So I, I, I will listen to you when you rebroadcast on on uh, Saturday, and we'll write down what you said. But the, the, the possible other thing that was going on, again, was what? Uh, Morton's near Roma, so that can affect... Roma. Yeah, yeah. Look, look that up. But, you know, either way... Getting a second opinion on it, you know, is probably a good idea, particularly of an orthopedic surgeon that sort of specializes in the ankle and foot. Um, that That's certainly somebody that you might want to look into. Right. I went to a podiatrist, but an orthopedic surgeon's my next step. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Don. We appreciate you calling. Yeah, things in the foot are sometimes difficult to uh, to uh, deal with. Uh I was going to say pain in the foot, but that's uh, that's actually you know a little redundant there. I should add, if you'd like to email us, maybe you weren't able to call in, although we do encourage you to do that during our hour that we're live. Um, the email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. We do try to read those in, uh, as quickly as we can and get back to you with an answer and share those, if it's okay with you, to our larger audience. Um, and sometimes, you know, you need to say a little bit more in descriptions to uh, to get at the bottom of your question. So we do uh, encourage people to do that. Uh, in fact, had a question via email about laboratory testing for tumor markers. And that's one you've probably seen on TV off and on. They'll say, hey, call in, ship your blood in. We'll test it for all these different cancers and tell you if you have them or not. Not a full amount of truth on that, I should say. So you need to be careful with that. You need to always talk to your physician first. There are lots of ways to check for that. For instance, there is a combination in low-risk individuals, in other words, individuals who do not have a primary um, relative who has had colon cancer, if you've reached the age where you would you know, be screened for that, or if you have a reason why it's not a good idea to get a colonoscopy, there is some alternative testing that may be beneficial to you individually if you sort of fit the bill um, of that low-risk category that tests for two things, small amounts of blood in your stool and a DNA testing that is testing for some minor changes in DNA that are associated with precancerous and cancerous uh, lesions in your in your colon, and it is it is at least comparable in those low risk individuals. In other words, if you have you know lots of people in your family with colon cancer, the best thing to do is get a colonoscopy because they can directly see that colon uh, and they can uh, potentially take out some things in the precancerous state before they get too widespread. But um, again, those kinds of things are out there, but you have to be very careful. Unfortunately, we do not have sort of really good methods of drawing blood and testing for a number of cancers. And in particular, colon and pancreatic were the ones mentioned by our our emailer. Uh, Pancreatic, same way. Now, there are tumor markers once you have the diagnosis that can be followed over time. Um, But again, just because you have that tumor marker, if it's even elevated or you check for it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's specific for cancer. A good example of this would be a PSA, a prostate-specific antigen test, which is a blood test. Um, and if that is, uh, it tends to increase in uh, the numerical value of it as you get older. This is for, for prostate screening. 
um, prostate cancer screening. And um, even if it's, you know, in the, in the elevated range, it may or may not be cancer. So there are other tests that you need. There are symptoms that you have to ask for. It's not as, as simple as most people would say, we just need a blood test. This is the way to say whether I do or don't have that, because you really have to understand, you know, how history and physical exam fit into that um, and then what the value of the actual test is. But I would say the best person for that is your personal physician that's going to ask those kinds of questions and not just uh, check those things on you. I'm going to go to Don. Good morning, Don from Mississippi. Good morning, Dr. Jimmy. Calling from Canada. I got disconnected. I'm driving truck. Sure, um, go ahead. I was I was calling because my wife is uh, 69 years old, uh-huh. and um, she's been having some bleeding periodically off and on. And uh, I've taken her to all of the hospitals um, that I've been referred to in in, um, in Houston, Texas, MD Anderson, and several other places. And they they said that she does not have anything that's cancerous. And uh, took her finally to OB- OBGYN, and he examined her and did the uh, what they call a little save or whatever. And um, he said that uh, everything looked good. She um, didn't need a hysterectomy, but periodically it keeps coming back. And it's dark red. It's not bright red most of the time. And I'm trying to see if you can recommend me to, to someone else. Yeah, just let me qualify where that, um, you know, where, where it is. So that's in the stool, you mean, she's bleeding? No, no, sir. It's vaginal bleeding. Vaginal bleeding. Okay. Yeah. So that one is uh, typically it is sometimes sort of usually it's like a fairly easy thing, you know, because of it's coming from the the uterus. But if she's had a uh, a complete hysterectomy and she's still having no, 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 no. she hasn't. No, she, the doctor, her OBGYN <clears throat> said she she did not need a, a oh, hysterectomy. Oh, okay, okay. And he said something about her something kind of a wall. Look good. The endometrial wall, probably. Yeah, that's the interior yeah, that, that's part. Right. right, that's the interior part of the uterus. And she's. You said she's sixty nine. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So she shouldn't be bleeding it normally. All right. So a uh, couple of different things. Sometimes you can have little irritations to that wall or a little benign growths. I'm assuming they did what's called a um, hysteroscope where they go up in there and they look around at that interior wall and make sure it's okay. It can, from time to time, change. I'm, th- this is uh, one area that I feel probably the weakest in is in gynecology, but there's lots of benign polyps that can sometimes do that. There's lots of other things that can cause intermittent bleeding. There may be something in the in the vaginal vault, too, in the in the cavity of the vagina itself. But sometimes it just takes time to figure out when you know where that is coming from, and um, it may take a little bit more of digging around to do that. Now there there is a modality where they take tagged red cells. In other words, they 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 take some some of the patient's blood and they uh, tag it with this um, with this substance that will light up on an X ray. And basically, if you have about 15 milliliters of blood per per hour or so of, uh, you know, a pretty significant amount, you can sort of see where it's coming from. And then you can go in and, and find out where, where, you know, sort of localize it. That may be something that they want to do. But if it's continued and it's coming from the vaginal vault I, and it's dark red, it 
seems to me like that's probably been sitting there for a while. So I, you know, I don't know. I, I might that might warrant them to go in and look again or get a second opinion on that. Um, but but if it's coming from the vagina and there's no connection from the vagina to something else, that is another possibility too. But I'm I'm assuming they've looked at that with either ultrasound scans and or the hysteroscope where they actually go up in there and look around. Right, they did do the ultrasound scan. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, they may need to do if they haven't done the hysteroscopy. And again, that's where they go up with a lot. It's almost like getting a colonoscopy, except they're looking through the vagina and they go up into the uterus itself. That may be a modality that they may want to do, you know, in a GYM that's that's comfortable doing that in in a sixty nine year old. So, I that would be my suggestion is to hit them a little bit harder. You know, I it sounds like you've gone to all the right places though, and and usually somewhere like MD Anderson is going to you know do a really thorough job of looking that up. However. I have seen patients that go to Mayo Clinic and uh, MD Anderson and all over the place, and they come back to their regular doctor, and finally they get a diagnosis. So I would not, uh, I would not just throw up my hands at this point and say, you know, well, we're just not going to worry about it because that's clearly abnormal and it's coming from somewhere. We just need to figure out where it is. Okay. Alrighty. Well, I appreciate your help, Doc. Yes, sir, Don. You keep uh, you keep knocking on that door to try to find an answer, okay? Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you for calling. Hugh from Biloxi. Good morning, Hugh. Yes, good morning. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I'm calling. Um, my mother's a type 2 diabetic. She's currently taking Lantus, but would like to switch to something like, like the safest alternative with the least Side effects. And you see the stuff on TV and it talks about lactic acidosis, ketoacidosis, or if you have heart issues or thyroid issues. Is there one? Yeah, it, every medication, including Lantus, which is a long acting insulin that she's taken, is going to have the, at least the potential of a side effect. So, I, you know, a lot of people, I know a lot of people will say, well, this one's not going to have any side effects. They are, they are not shooting straight with you. So every medication for anything, I don't care if it's over-the-counter aspirin, you know, there's always a risk of some type of side effect. Uh, for instance, with Lantus, hypoglycemia, getting too low a blood sugar is a uh, potential side effect, uh, and you have to sort of know what to look for. But there are alternatives, and some of those other medications I use on a regular basis with that, my patients, and they're very effective. There are multiple choices, and it does sort of matter what other diagnoses she has, like hypertension or you know heart failure, kidney disease, or the potential for any of those, because some of them work better to help prevent those side effects. Um, you mentioned a couple of things, you know, like diabetic ketoacidosis, which is uh, a condition where you basically accumulate too much uh, uh, keto acids in your blood and it can be sort of dangerous. You can have that with diabetes uh, by itself, though. So an untreated diabetes can give you the same thing. Metformin is probably the oldest and the one that's been utilized the most. It is an oral medication that you take um, once, but most of the time twice a day. It does have a pretty safe uh, profile, particularly if you don't have any kidney problems. If you do have kidney problems, there are other medications. There's a group of medications called the uh, GLP-1s and uh, the SGLT-2s. 
that are newer medications but have been really looked at and are really good in different situations. So, what was I, that? I, I'm sorry to interrupt. What was it? So, uh, GLP one, uh, GLP one, uh, GLP ones, and SGLT 2s Okay. Now, now, but it's not one of these. You know, this is this is an area where it really does sort of matter what's going on with the patient. Like, what do their labs look like? What do their other medic, me, medical problems look like? Because you want to match some of these things up, and sometimes it's beneficial to take two of these, or even continue the insulin, the Lantus, and maybe add one of these for other effects. And again, they all have potential side effects. But, you know, you just want to match that up with the individual um, with what's best for them. So, in particular, I mean, she's older uh, and she's really close to being into some sort of care facility because she, she has other issues with, you know, balance and being able to get up and keep her balance and move around and mobility issues and such. And the place she was looking at said that because she uses these Atlantis uh, injections, they're reluctant to take her and said, you know, in the, in the unlikely event that something happens because of your injections, that's related to your injections, you know, there's not a doctor or, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'd, sometimes I'll run into that. Although in reality, it's, you know, as long as you're not over giving too much of that, it's actually a pretty safe medication to use. But I understand they have different, you know, things that different facilities are comfortable with. Oral medications yeah. like metformin, for instance, it doesn't have as much risk, say, if you compare it to Lantus, of lowering the blood sugar too much. And as long as somebody's not getting dehydrated and they've got good kidney function, um, it's pretty safe. And you don't have to monitor uh, the blood sugar often either. So it can be, again, a pill that you take once or twice a day. And uh, it's, it, again, it's been around a long time. Um, and yeah, I wrote that one down. I'm sorry. Good. I wrote it down. Oh, okay. <laughs> it being the oldest, it's like, oh well, that's a good one to know. Yeah. Well, the, okay. One of the one of the other classes that I didn't mention that I just don't use as much anymore because of some of these newer ones, but um, there are some that lower the blood sugar too much, and as you get older, they're not as safe. So I'm not even going to mention them so we don't get them mixed up. But um, no. but again, right. but again, I'm I might consult with you know an internal medicine or um endocrinologist just to say okay we're looking to change this to oral medications which sounds like that's going to be your best bet going into a facility like that with the least amount of side effects and an older individual that may not have a whole lot of you know physical activity and and they're they're going to come up with a couple of things that are probably going to be pretty safe for okay well you know we got something that we can talk about yeah when we get into the doctor's because the last one we went to, they said, well, you kind of need to make up your mind about what you want to do, and then we can kind of look for something. It's like, well, you know, that's what we're here for. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, it was kind of like a round-and-round kind of thing. It was like, well, you know, uh, I freely admit to not being a doctor. So, yeah, I you know can you if, help us out. You know, I mean, and, in a direction. And again, if her labs look okay, kidney function looks okay. I you know yep. there's there's not another contraindication. I would sort of you know uh, I would sort of go over to metformin first and see if that can control the blood sugar. And again, if she's older, her targets her target A one C is not going to be the same target as somebody who's 
say 20 and active um, that has diabetes, I would I would shoot for an A1C somewhere between seven, maybe eight um, rather than six. So that's another thing to keep in mind. You know, as you get older, you can run into so many more problems getting the blood sugar too low as opposed to it, you know, sort of running in the 150s to 170s. Yeah, yesterday we stopped for an ice cream cone while we were out. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> this must be, you know. Right, right. I didn't say, uh, you think your blood sugar's running low? <laughs> yeah. then, you, know, you, you wouldn't have to work. Later on, but I thought, well. We need to stop. We need to stop. Right. So so you may not have to worry about that so much if you're on one of those other medications. It may actually be less of an overall risk, you know, potential risk on one of those than it is on that Atlantis. Okay. All right. All righty. Well, Hugh, uh, take that, and uh, that, that'll be your homework to take back to the doctor and say, okay, Dr. Jimmy said we might want to uh, we might want to investigate some of these. What do y'all think would be the best for her? That's an oral medication. Can I quote Dr. Jimmy on that? Sure, you can quote me. Go ahead. All right. <laughs> all right, Hugh. Thank you for calling. All right, thank you. We're going to go to Craig all the way down in Biloxi, Mississippi. Good morning, Craig. Hey, good morning. Uh, I banged my head and had a Y shaped puckered up uh, cut, not quite needing stitches. And I flattened it out using a piece of plastic lid, and it worked rather well. But I have two questions. Uh, one is I found silicone sheets that are supposed to do the same thing, and when do you use uh, surgical glue in the cut? Yeah, so good. two good questions, sort of related, but I'll take them a little bit differently. So let's let's talk about the the glue first, you know, sort of. We've been using that for a long time. That sort of fell into favor during my training um, and uh, close to 25 years ago. But uh, basically, it is basically super glue. It's pretty similar in consistency to super glue, a little bit, you know, a little bit more of a liquid state than that gel uh, state of most super glues, but it is a uh, cyanoacrylate uh, uh, substance that basically just sort of glues those edges together. There are places to use that and there are places not to use that. So if you have a simple cut that is not too deep, it go, doesn't go down in the dermis, um, it's just on the surface, then uh, and it's easy to what we call approximate. Approximate just means we're going to take those two edges that are cut and apart and then we're going to put them both together. If it's a nice line, like a simple cut, you can apply pressure at the ends of that cut and pull like you're, you're, you're almost uh, looks like you're trying to make that line of the cut longer. And what that does is sort of pulls those edges together and then we can glue that. And it's nice in that it doesn't if it, you know, most of the time it doesn't cause that big of a of a scar when you do that. And you can, you know, sometimes avoid works really good in, you know, fine, real fine cuts that we're gonna put more, we're gonna have to deaden it up, we're gonna have to, you know, to put sutures in or staples in. It's gonna be much more of a of a cosmetic issue. So we're using a lot more of those. You also use them around surgeries too for the final closure. So they'll uh, use that and it'll sort of fall off. The other good thing about that is it forms this nice little protective layer uh, over the top. So you're not going to run the risk of something getting in there that's, you know, infected and falls off in about a week. So, you know, if it's something that, that normally would heal up in about a week, 
that's sort of nice. It just sort of falls off on its own. You don't have to have, you know, the sutures or anything like that removed. All pluses. Now, if it is a nasty, jagged cut, not going to work because uh, it's just not going to be able to have the bonding structure to it. If it is in places like the hairline, incredibly difficult. Like you really have to shave the area to do that or eyebrows. You don't want to do it anywhere near the eye because the substance can be damaging to the eye or you can't do it around the lips or nose uh, like mucous membranes. But other than that, it can be fairly useful. For a cut that's already happened and you have a scar, that's not going to do anything. It's going to have a layer on top of it, but I just want to point that I don't think that's what you were asking, but that's not going to be useful really to use on it. The silicon sheets uh, can do a couple of things uh, for scars. There's all kinds of way to like deal with scars like that. You can get really fancy. You can go to dermatology, and they can soften those up with some low-intensity uh, lasers, actually. It doesn't burn the skin. It just sort of reorganizes that scar tissue and sort of softens it up. The best thing from the prevention standpoint is keep that cut covered, Um, Most people, you know, a lot of people will think, I need to dry this out as much as possible. No, actually, that's not what you need to do. And that's one of the ways that those little silicon sheets work, particularly closer to when you have it repaired, because they provide the right moisture content and they write tensile strength across it that those cells can grow back together. Uh, The other thing is UV radiation. So any scar that's healing that gets more sunlight is going to be more pronounced, um, mainly, you know, from a tinting standpoint. So you want to make sure you have it covered or you have sunblock on that. And that can be, you know, if you talk to a dermatologist or plastic surgeon, you need to do that for, you know, up to a year or more sometimes. Um, But there's all kinds of other little things. Ultrasound sometimes can sort of soften those areas up. But, um, yeah, I'd say if you could try the silicon sheets, but if it's already, you know, if you're more than a couple of months out, that may not be the best thing to sort of, you know, create the right environment for that to heal up. Okay. Uh, well, the, the, uh, the plastic lid worked, worked real, rather well on my forehead. It, yeah. Uh, it, it, like, it was real puckered, and it flattened right out on me. Yeah, and what you're doing is you're, you know, sometimes it can be real tight there where it, the skin's brought together, and you can somehow, you can sometimes alleviate that. Uh, that's another thing that skin glue does sometimes is it creates a tension that's not directly on that cut or where it's put together, that it's uh, distributed in a larger area, if that makes sense. So you're just trying to sort of patch it out. Same kind of principles, if you think about it, from anything that's under pressure or has tension on it, um, you know, in in engineering terms, particularly with, with um, elastic materials, it's the same kind of thing. If you put a patch over a tire, for instance, the larger the patch and the more it distributes that, that, you know, that tension across that membrane, the better it's going to be. If you, have every, if you just repair it right there at the source, that's still going to be a lot of tension on that one site. So a lot of physics involved with these you know, and, and how they look at it. But that, that sounds like exactly what you did. Okay, thank you. All right, Craig, thanks for calling. Uh, lots of uh, weather changes out there. I was talking with uh, with somebody last, I guess it was last weekend, about you know just how dry it has been in several parts of the state. Thankfully, multiple parts of the state have gotten rain. We still haven't gotten rain here in cent- central Mississippi for most of the area, uh, at least that's been significant. 
And there's still a lot of health problems that go along with that. Certainly if you uh, are dealing with allergic rhinitis or chronic sinusitis problems, this is not making it any better. Um, hopefully we're in a slow trend towards cooler weather, which we usually do. And when Mississippi, that usually means a little bit more. Um, a little bit more uh, rain on the forecast. But just keep in mind, it's still pretty hot out there. I know I was joking with somebody the other day, you know, it's like, man, it's like it's so cool out here. It's only 95 for a high. Um, that You may be tempted, like myself, to go out and enjoy that and run, but don't forget about hydration. Like, you still need that. It may feel a little bit more tolerable, but you still need to take the precautions to uh, protect yourself. Uh, and uh, and others that are with you. So just keep that in mind. If you've got little ones out there, too, that can't uh, necessarily do that, little toddlers or neonates, you need to make sure that they're protected as well out, out of the sun. Because uh, we all know here in the South that our summer is actually about six months of the year. Um, <laughs> it's just the way it goes down here. We don't have to worry about cold weather as much. Um, you know, we were talking about diabetic medications earlier, and certainly I just wanted to point out for most chronic um, conditions like diabetes and hypertension, there now are multiple medications that we use, and sometimes we use those in combination for good reasons. Combination medications can help reduce some of those side effects by using lower do- doses than if we were just using one. So if I just chose one medication to treat diabetes, I might have to use higher doses of it uh, whereas if I chose two different medications, then I could reduce the dose and maybe reduce some of those potential side effects. And again, there may be other reasons for using these like uh, to help protect your kidneys or uh, just a one medication that may be a little bit better. Maybe your potassium's lower and you're treating hypertension. You want to use a medication that actually raises potassium up into more of a normal range. All kinds of different reasons. It is incredibly hard Particularly, you know, over the radio just to say, okay, this is the medication you ought to use. This is what I use on people. And that's just not the way, you know, the body works for different people. And what I use on one patient may be totally different on another patient, even within the same family. You know, I, I, you know, have families all the time. They're like, well... My mom's on a uh, on a uh, angiotensin receptor blocker, something like Losartan, for instance. Uh, my father's on Losartan. I think you just need to put me on Losartan. There may that might work, but that's not necessarily how it works, even within the same family. So there can be some very good reasons why that may or may not be a good choice for you individually. Uh, So just keep that in mind. Thankfully, we do have a lot of different uh, medications to choose from for both of those things. So for things like hypertension and diabetes, there's lots of good choices and newer medications that are out there that have very good um, efficacy in treating both of those and in lowering your risk of other things. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions via calls and email about any kind of health care topic. We're going to go to Mike from Mobile. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Doc. I have a quick question about uh, hypothyroidism. Sure. It, I have a, a strong family history of it. I have it, and my brother and sister and grandparents did, and I talked my 32-year-old daughter into finally going and being tested. She came back with normal TSH, normal free T4, 
but the thyroid peroxidase antibody was high. Mm-hmm. I assume she'll just be TSH tested yearly or something until finally it starts to raise. Correct. Yep. So, so it sounds like you you're very familiar with sort of the normal mechanism. Let me back up a little bit and explain to our other listeners, though, sort of how this works. So, uh, that but that is correct. And uh, and uh, so the thyroid gland is an, an H shaped gland. If you're looking at the front of somebody's neck, and um, it sort of sits over your your vocal cords. And its main job is to sort of control uh, your metabolism in the body. So it, it, if it's acting normally during those times that you need more gas, for instance, it's going to sort of rev up. You know, it's going to be your accelerator. And then if for those other times when you don't need as much, it's going to put on the brakes. It is controlled. Uh, so it's, it, it, it is secreting hormones to do that, right? So the free T4 that you mentioned is sort of the thing that there's also a, a T3 uh, and there's a binding and sort of delivery system to the rest of the body that we won't get into. But those hormones sort of um, they control that metabolism and the thyroid. How it knows to do this is it gets a signal called a TSH, a thyroid stimulating hormone from a lower area of the brain. So the pituitary gland uh, that sits on the on the base of your brain, sort of in the middle it secretes this stimulatory hormone to tell the thyroid, hey, we need more thyroid hormone or we need less. And then finally, there's also one higher up in the, in the brain called a TRH that's not typically checked often. Usually it's that TSH and then the free T4. But it, they are simple, um, simple lab tests via the blood to get. Uh, usually you don't have to do any imagings uh, on the initial diagnosis. They may want to do that. But in families, you can see this sort of pattern. And a lot of the time, you know, everybody wants to know, well, why does this happen? Why does your thyroid suddenly stop doing what, what it's, you know, stop secreting this hormone to get hypothyroidism? And sometimes the answer is we don't know. There is a lot of autoimmune processes that affect that. It is a gland that frequently you'll develop an autoimmune function. Uh, sometimes for women, they get it after pregnancy. So we'll see thyrotoxicosis where you can sort of swing to the hyperthyroidism level and then back to normal and then hypothyroidism. But the anti uh, TPO antibodies, and I think that's what you said, or did you say thyroperoxidase? <laughs> Thyroid peroxidase, but I think it did parentheses TPO on it. Yeah, so it's probably anti-TPO antibodies, so that's looking for that autoimmune process, and that can precede uh, your thyroid gland stopping doing what it's supposed to do, right? So that is sort of the process that's going on, and what you would do is exactly what you described, is that periodically, these hormones aren't really fast. They're like... Uh, if you, you usually don't need to test them any more frequently than two to three months, sometimes six months at a time, unless your symptoms change. But, um, yeah, in this case, somebody who is asymptomatic, doesn't have any problems, uh, or even if they did have mild symptoms, you would check those hormone levels. And until they go abnormal, 
you wouldn't really do anything about it. Now, there are certain situations that they may want to do some imaging of the thyroid. There are very rare instances, and not in this case by what you said, but if other abnormalities where they may want to check, you know, for different kinds of things like thyroid cancer, but it doesn't sound like in this case that's the case. I mean, if the the anti-TPO antibodies are elevated, this is almost always sort of Hashimoto's or an autoimmune type process. Right. So so waiting is the thing to do. Uh, the other thing that if you are, uh, and again, it sounds like, Mike, you know a lot about this already, but if you are early in this diagnosis, you know, a lot of people will say, uh, or they'll have their thyroid removed for certain reasons, um, and mm-hmm. they, they have to take thyroid hormone. It's an easy thing to replace. But it does go up and down, like you need different amounts at different times of your life. And sometimes it can be very frustrating in the early stages after diagnosis when you initiate treatment. So I just would say this is one of those things that will help teach you patients, because uh, if you once you start that thyroid replacement hormone, it, it you usually don't check, recheck those levels for six to eight weeks. So it, it is right. something that you have to, you know, sort of follow and over time. But it's something that, you know, is very common. And as we get older, stuff wears out. We get sort of autoimmune processes. And unfortunately, this is one of those organs that is more susceptible to that. Okay. So at this point, we don't have where we can genetic engineer stuff. So there's no preventing Yeah, not really. Yeah, we don't have a way that we can say, you know, shoot some stem cells in there or we can regrow a thyroid. Um, It's it is sort of, you know, it's not really anything that we have that's fancy about that. The synthetic. The other thing is like uh, a lot of people want to go natural and they're like, can I get like desiccated thyroid? So they'll get like thyroid that is sort of more, you know, quote, natural very hard to administer, very hard to standardize, and it's much harder to treat with that. The synthetic Synthroid or uh, levothyroxine that most people take, very consistent. I, it's one of those medications, though, that you almost always need to, to not get the generic um, because there is some variability with that. And there are some um, particular things about when you're, you need to take it. And you know this, Mike, you know, it's you got to mm-hmm. take it before you eat. You can't take it with other medications. You can't take it with some things like uh, supplements, particularly uh, calcium and multivitamins, because it'll get bound up in there. So those are all things that once you get on it, you have to sort of abide by. But uh, the other thing is, like, if you miss a dose of Synthroid, the convenient thing is you just take it the next day with the dose that you had then. In fact, some people just take it once a week, and because it's so slow acting, they don't see any difference. And they just have one day that they take seven pills. Um, so they're pretty small, too. So, um, but, but, yeah, there's not really a there's not really a, something to where we can, uh, you know, regrow that gland or anything. Okay. I appreciate the information. All right, Mike. Thank you for calling. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny.
You can tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remini lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on 